The Dalai Lama once said that today, more than ever before, life must be characterized by a sense of universal responsibility, not only nation to nation and human to human, but also human to other forms of life. Join me in conversation with some of the world's most creative thinkers to explore the importance of ethics to this responsible decision-making in today's technologically infused world. Artists, entrepreneurs, scientists, journalists, academics, and beyond navigate the gray, the blend of right and wrong, of opportunities and risks on all sides of our most important challenges, whether gene editing, civilian space travel, or artificial intelligence. They also probe the age-old and more ethically black and white behaviors, such as sexual misconduct, human trafficking, and life-threatening inequality. Our guests endeavor to transcend religious, political, national, and ethnic perspectives, but recognize the inevitable biases we all bring. The term ethics can make us uncomfortable. At the Ethics Incubator, we confront the E-word head-on. It may be inconvenient or even unclear, but ethical conundrums underpin almost every headline and affect almost every human choice. With truth under threat and the boundaries of humanity blurring, I believe that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. As always, we welcome your thoughts. Tim, it's really a pleasure to welcome you to the Ethics Incubator. I've been a long-standing fan of Ethisphere, and for those of you who don't know Ethisphere, I highly recommend you check the website. It's an institute that, as Tim describes it, is a rising tide organization that helps mostly multinational corporations to measure and improve their ethics practices and with a focus on the good. What does good look like and what does best practice look like? Hi, thank you so much for making the time to chat. Let me just start, if I may, just to kind of ground the conversation in how is it that somebody has a career path that ends up being the CEO of an organization like Ethisphere, that as you described it, is a rising tide organization trying to really increase the attention to ethics and the efficacy of ethics leaders around the world in major organizations. How do you end up doing this? What is your personal journey? Like most things, I would attribute it to a couple of things, really good luck, the kindness and generosity of people. So I spent about 20 plus years for what is now called Thomson Reuters, mainly in their legal and regulatory groups. So I ran um, the corporate legal sector based out of New York globally for them. Prior to that, I ran what we did around the globe for what was then Big Eight, and then it was the six, and then it almost was three. Um, so I've had a career in what I would sort of call legal and regulatory codification. And then I was fortunate enough to be introduced about a little bit more than a decade ago to a guy called Alex Brigham, who's founded Ethisphere. And he founded Ethisphere with the notion that there's so many measures of what bad looks like for corporations fines, sanction, debarments, couldn't we create a notion of what good looks like? And then couldn't we correlate that to financial performance of the same businesses? And so that's what Alex really set off to do. And I was lucky enough to be connected with him about 10 or 11 years ago, as I sort of got to dig into Ethisphere, 
one of the things I think I'm good at is people sometimes call me a collector. And what they mean by that is a collector of relationships. My father was, I think, a master at being a lifelong friend. So for example, yesterday we announced uh, an addition to our board of strategic advisors. A couple of the people that you've seen on there are Vita Richardson, for example, she's president and CEO of the Association of Corporate Counsel. Right. I've known I've known Vita, had the honor of knowing Vita since back when she was CEO of Minority Corporate Counsel Association. I ran a business for the New York Stock Exchange, got to ring the bell a couple of times, which is really a neat thing to do. But so Vita got to ring the bell with me. And so another, yeah. And if you look at Vita's, I think, Facebook site, you'll see her or Instagram site ringing the bell. So it's a big deal for her. And she's really a champion of integrity. Uh, you'll see another guy called Alex Dimitrioff. I've when I was back at Thomson Reuters, I started something with Association of Corporate Counsel called the Excellence in Corporate Practice Award. Ben Heineman, the legendary general counsel of GE. Yes, I know Ben, he's phenomenal. Yeah, so he was our first recipient. So I've known Ben for a really long time. And so just this kind of nexus of being surrounded by nice people, being surrounded by people with vision. Another guy that's on our board is called Michael Hirschman. Michael was a co-founder of Transparency International. I know you do a ton of great work around the world. Michael co-founded the International Center for Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna. And yeah, TI is amazing. I mean, so you have these incredible people and I love the focus on what good looks like, but give us some examples of what does good look like? What are you looking for uh, when you honor someone or when you're trying to get someone from not so good to good? What are the priorities? It's almost always initially based in regulatory framework. So I happen to be based in America. Our Ethosphere's audience are global multinational corporations. So for example, in the past few years, we, we have this organization called the Business Ethics Leadership Alliance. It's been around for a while. It was born out of the financial crisis. And it was really a bunch of companies came to us and said, you know, companies are getting pilloried right now can't you set up a framework, an organization to focus on, again, what good looks like, and we collaborate together. So, so we've done that, and it's now evolved to chapters in India, South Asia, LATAM, Asia-Pac, and so on and so forth. And what companies want to do is there's certainly you can see what the fine sanctions and debarments look like. You can see the regulatory framework of when companies are going to get, get into trouble but you really don't know what good looks like, for example, around human rights in the supply chain, human trafficking in the supply chain. Now, certainly one of the sort of, um, I wanna call it next frontiers are really, I think it's mental health in the workplace. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And we're seeing that by the way, not just in the corporate sector, but in the NGO sector, in, the, in academia, hugely important and even more so after COVID. But so how do you, when you tell a corporation to look at human rights, human trafficking uh, specifically, or supply chain or mental health in the workplace indeed. What would be examples of, of concrete things that you would expect them to do or concrete evidence that they are doing the good? We generally talk to corporations through um, their general counsel or a function called the Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer. And we're adjacent to the CEO. We're certainly very close with the board and the audit committee. And all of those functions are really looking for data. They're looking for comparative practices. So for example, I'll use human rights. Do you have a policy? Do your employees understand? 
understand. There's ways to test whether or not your employees understand. Are there controls in place? What about your third party ecosystem? How do they know what to do? Are you helping them? Are you measuring them? Are you rewarding those who do well? Are you sort of um, impacting those who do not good well? So it kind of starts with what we try to do that I think um, is beneficial for the world is we take almost opaque areas and do our best, our best, excuse me, to codify good practices into things that can be measured against. Do, do employees or indeed other stakeholders understand? Because one of the things I keep telling organizations about transparency is that it's not about did you tell them, it's about did they understand what it means for them, how they are supposed to act. So I, I think that's incredibly compelling. And also, I think it's, you know, the, the kind of thing you're describing about generating data and best practice or better practice or improving practice is incredibly powerful because it doesn't have to be the same in India as it is in New York, as it is in Latin America, but all of these ideas feed on each other. What is the sort of most important lesson you learned in this role at Ethisphere? The one thing you would tell every organization or every leader they need to focus on? There's so much going on with ESG right now. So many people reach out to Ethisphere and they reach out to me and they talk about anything ranging from stakeholder capitalism to what they call operationalizing trust. So the most important thing I think is to operationalize trust. I know you do, you advise all sorts of entities all over the world, whether you're an NGO, whether you're in academia, whether you're a sovereign wealth fund, whether you're in government, it's really about trust, but how do you engender trust? So I think you have to be self-aware and ask yourself that question. And, you know, one of the great data sources is the Edelman Trust Barometer. And one of the things that's interesting over the past few years is the entity that is most trusted by society right now. It's certainly not government. It's certainly not the media. It's not NGOs. It's actually corporations. And they actually, um, I think the latest study said something like 78% of sort of stakeholders expect CEOs to have a voice on social issues. So that's something that I wanted to get to. So the Edelman study is really interesting and it changes over time. And I think it says a lot that governments are not a source of trust right now. And that even in many ways, uh, civil society organizations are not a source of trust. And I think it's part of the sort of broader crisis of expertise and crisis, even part of the crisis of faith in science or willingness to deny Mm -hmm. science. But let's talk a little bit about the broader context. I've heard a lot of leaders in different sectors talk about moral decline and that we're in a period of moral decline. And certainly a lot of writers are writing about it, publishers in the media. What is your take on this, this kind of feeling that we're in a period of moral decline? And do you think that based on Edelman or other things that actually corporations or even investors concerned about things like ESG, the environmental social governance, that they're actually not in moral decline? Yeah, it's interesting. I saw a stat this morning that said some $35 trillion have been invested in socially responsible funds this year. That's something like 40% of all investable assets are going into what's called responsible investing. So I sort of look at the hierarchy and look at the food chain and things like, okay, I am a capitalist. You know, Atmosphere believes that it's sustainable for companies to make money. 
Um, so if you look at where all that money, money is going and the transparency that's expected, there's a piece in the journal this morning that says the expectations are different for those who put money into what's called ESG, and that is they want to know more. So it would be impossible, uh, especially for those based in America, to think that there has been an assault on truth. And, um, and there is a moral decline that comes with the assault on the basic decency of telling the truth. I have two kids. I think they're wonderful and beautiful, but it's really important that they tell the truth, be honest, right? right? We all try to model that. So, so we've seen that behavior modeled and to some extent repeated in a way that I think no politics aside, no one can be happy about that. But what you're seeing is you're seeing these entities and look at a company like Accenture. So Julie Sweet, Accenture's in a hundred countries. Julie Sweet just wrapped something that I participated in um, where she was chair of the Disability and Inclusion uh, annual conference. One of the things that the disability in group does is they rate companies on their disability and inclusion practices. Ethisphere actually uses pieces of those ratings and how we rate companies. So, and, and then a lot of the data that comes out of it is companies with better disability and inclusion practices outperform over the long term. So all of those things, you know, there's a lot of talk of how it's in conflict with Milton Friedman and this in the statement of the, of the purpose of the corporation. And I guess I would say if, if, if he believes the purpose of a corporation agent is to make money and, and, and grow the assets for stakeholders. And if you do that in part by being a more inclusive work fate, workplace where you're a more transparent workplace, there's, there's data that's come out of this sort of communications field that also said you get credit from society for having, for publishing a CSR plan you actually get greater credit for publishing when you miss your goals. Right. Well, that goes back to trust. That's exactly uh, right. You know, nobody performs perfectly all the time. When you're not cherry picking what truths you share, whether it's with shareholders or the public or other stakeholders, that's trust building. Let me ask you a question. I know you said you work with uh, chief ethics officers, chief compliance officers, general counsels, et cetera. But there's been a lot of pressure on CEOs to speak up on social issues, whether it's social justice issues or the environment, the, the Georgia voting laws that are now propagating in other states. What is your view on what CEOs should or shouldn't do when it comes to speaking out on social issues? It's interesting. Dell recently just came out with their 2030 goals. And one of the things, the way that Dell described themselves is where profit meets purpose. The word, of, the word purpose is very intentional. I think if you look at um, the growing expectations of somebody like Larry Fink and BlackRock and State Street has been very loud about their focus on boards and culture. So I think, I think there's no choice. And I think you had mentioned social media at the beginning of this conversation. Everybody knows everything all the time. And a, ver a word not spoken is actually a word spoken very loud. One of the things we did after the George Floyd situation, we heard some from so many companies and so many African-American executives that companies need to do something. Doing nothing is not an option. So I think it's forever changed. And I think that's to the good. The Georgia voting laws that have now been propagated across a number of states, we have tragedies like George Floyd. We have all manner of other kinds of questions. CEOs can't speak up on everything. How do they pick and choose what they're going to speak 
speak up about? And how can we not have a situation where CEOs are attacked personally or companies are attacked because doing something isn't an option about so many things today? Yeah. So one of the interesting things, when a few years ago, the current administration um, put out a, a ruling or an effort to really sideline DACA. And that next day, Microsoft with other companies, but really led by Microsoft, was very public about their reaction to that and actually filed briefs upon briefs about it. And I asked them, how did you, a global a giant global corporation, react so fastly? And they say, we work really hard on our values. So our values should be incredibly clear. And one of the things, you know, they're led by Satya Nadella, he's an immigrant. So one of their core values is the power of different voices, different points of view uh, working there. So when something that came out was against their core values, there wasn't a discussion. It was already known. So I think all corporations um, have to, if they haven't already, evolve into a values-based or values-led organization. In my book, I talk about, you know, starting with principles and everybody needs to pick them. And you don't have 20. You pick you know, four, five, six, seven, and then you really have to live by them. And as you said earlier, you have to make sure everybody understands them. But it's interesting that you think that that's also really a guide for when the CEOs speak up, because I, I know that a lot of CEOs and boards are wondering, you know, they're in places where lots of human rights violations are happening. They can't pull out of everywhere. They'd have to pull out of the U.S., frankly, if they were worried about, you know, being in a place that had no significant human rights violations. So it's a really tricky time. And I and it just seems like Ethisphere is such a fantastic foundation and such a fantastic meeting point for so many different points of view as, as these issues evolve. And speaking of evolving issues, let me ask you if you have a view about COVID as clearly the workplace rife with ethical issues now, things like should corporations require vaccination? And we saw the CEO of Morgan Stanley say, oh, if you can have lunch in a restaurant, you can go back to work. And we have some CEOs saying, if you're going to go back to work, you have to be vaccinated. Others doing different things. What is your view on that, on how decision-making should happen around those COVID-related policies? We touched upon things like mental health in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Why is that an issue? The issue is because your employees have to feel safe to um, operate in their environment. And if they're not, you probably have a, a, an employee that's not as engaged or um, the flip side is more likely to engage in poor behavior. I think as the values are, I want to have a workplace where people say, feel safe to raise their own hand. One of the things we've been asked to do is help companies measure culture. The way we look at it is, is we measure a bunch of different things, but the main thing we measure is, do you really feel safe to raise your, to raise your hand? So I think in terms of COVID, I think you, you look again in the US, there were places like Salesforce. Salesforce was maybe the first major publicly traded company I know to send all their employees home way before any sort of regulatory uh, sort of agency um, guided one to do that. So I think, it's, I think it comes back to values or you said principles. I want to differentiate myself by creating the, the best environment for my employees to bring their whole selves to work. And if you believe that that means your employees should be vaccinated or your employees should choose whether or not they feel comfortable. Like one of the things we do at Ethisphere, we're a little business, but our, our employees choose where they work. And I'm not gonna mandate anybody to go anywhere until they feel safe. 
And so what we do with corporations is the way that I think we help society be better is we bring corporations together, we capture what their practices are, and we make a judgment of what good looks like. So for us- How do you measure something like culture though? How do you you go about measuring that? We look at it from the employee perception standpoint. So we have developed software program or a bunch of algorithms that break it into- eight pillars. It's all on our website. You can go check it out. Things like organizational pressure, organizational justice. Uh, We talked a little bit about awareness. Do you even know where the policies and programs are? It doesn't matter if you've got great policies, if you can't find them. Like one of the things that many corporations focus on and the regulators tell them they have to do it is you have to have a hotline or a way for companies to report issues. 92% of issues by major corporations never hit the hotline. You know where they hit? They hit their manager. They hit their peers. So are your managers and peers prepared to do something with that information? Do you even capture that it's coming to that? Right. So those are ways. And so we can tell people what what good looks like from a programmatic standpoint. But then when we test your employees and your employees say, well, it doesn't matter because I don't feel like the rules are the same for me and you, then you've got an issue. Or the people in Asia feel like they're, they're culturally not able to raise their hand. So you've got to get in there and recognize that and have some change management. But it starts with measuring. So I can't tell you how much what you just said resonates. The number of times I worked with the multinational organizations and employees in Asia will say, well, we're culturally different. We're not that, we don't have that kind of way of expressing ourselves. And also incredibly important when you just said about managers, it's all well and good to speak to a manager, but if the managers don't feel safe or don't know what to do with the information, because, you know, managers can start very junior, but even very senior managers can feel not safe raising issues all the way up or all the way across or wherever they need to go. The best practices that we see. So the question would be to any organization, is it good that there's lots of issues raised in your operations in Latin America or a particular business unit, or is it bad? So the data strongly suggests the organization um, where people feel safe to raise their hand is, an, is a challenger organization. It's an organization that innovates. So the question is, well, many times, most of the time, it doesn't go into this corporate system of a hotline. So you've got to focus. I always talk about like tone at the top being table stakes. It's really action in the middle. That's where you set the culture of an organization who gets who gets hired, who gets fired, who gets rewarded, who gets promoted. That's what people see. The best companies celebrate mistakes. They share mistakes. Like we talked about CSR and vulnerability. We have a cultural breakdown on, um, you know, revenue recognition in, in India. Here's what happened. Here's what we did about it. And, you know, again, our audience, they're large companies and people ask me all the time, well, how could you say XYZ is a good company? They had an issue here. Well, let me tell you something. Every company, every, every company has, has an issue. Yeah. It, and I, I'm so glad you, do you say about that. It. Exactly. And I mean, coming from you, it's so important that everybody hear that because it's the same thing about things like sexual misconduct. I mean, where you have people, you will have sexual misconduct. And it doesn't matter whether it's a global NGO or a global corporation. And anybody who says they don't, it's an organization where people don't feel safe to report it. Let's um, broaden the lens in the last few minutes that we have. The world is a complicated place. And outside the corporate world, what do you, when you look out and you read the news and you're engaged in these conversations with leaders, uh, what do you think is sort of the most important 
ethics issue that the world faces today from your point of view? What keeps you up at night outside of Ethisphere? I think um, transparency. And I would equate transparency to truth. Or another way to say it is vulnerability. You know, I love Renee Brown's work, Larry Fink, and what he's been trying to do. I think the kind of normalization of the assault on the truth is really, it's a problem. And if you look at, you know, of course, we're still going through a global pandemic. None of us, certainly in my lifetime, have ever dealt with any. And I think the trauma that we've all experienced over the last 18 months is just now starting to come out. And I think we're going to be struggling for a long time. So being able to encourage vulnerability, being able to recognize that people need help are the types of things that I think also lead to a high performing organization. My particular sort of passion as well. And I, I find it for one thing, it topples ethics. You know, there are no values that are not somehow connected to truth. It's very difficult to look at things like honesty or integrity or diversity, for that matter, even profits. So it's very difficult to look at values that are all of them are somehow linked to truth. And if they're not, I would sort of question the choice because there's no way to hold anybody accountable for the delivery of them. But I, I think the assault on truth is very dangerous. But also you mentioned teenagers. You know, it's very dangerous that we're raising children and teenagers in a world that seems to think that truth is up for negotiation or that truth is an option, or even that they can sort of custom design the world to be the way they want it to be. So it's a really sort of challenging confluence of things. And I think it's fantastic the way you've managed to take that challenge and in, in, in an organization like Ethisphere, and as you put it at the beginning, to be a rising tide organization and to have such a positive impact on so many large organizations that in turn have such a positive impact on so many people. And I love your also your link with vulnerability. I really appreciate Brene Brown's work, but you have to be willing to be vulnerable if you're going to commit to the truth. The truth isn't fun sometimes. Right. And that's the foundation. You know, I was lucky enough, 10 years ago, I got asked to speak at something at Ford Motor. It was a conference they did called Trust is the New Black. It was pretty daunting. I was in between Steve Wozniak and Bill Ford. One of the things that, you know, that sort of came out was, how do you get people to trust you? And by and large, while the assault on the truth may have a loud voice, I strongly believe that by and large people are good and they want to do good. I think our kids want to do good. I think teenagers, I think everybody. So I think the more examples that you can put forth of what good looks like and that they're rewarded by more investors. I mean, the whole ESG thing right now, the probably the loudest voice are like the rating agencies are taking it super serious. Investors are taking it super serious because they're realizing the benefits of attracting some set of people or a set of investors that believe companies have to do good. So, and that didn't exist maybe five years ago, maybe 10 years ago. So there's actually probably more trends. I mean, I can, you talked about CEOs. We can talk CEOs in there, look them in the eyes and say, what are your policies around mental health in the workplace? And that was that the case three years ago? I mean, the thing about human rights and human trafficking in the supply chain, I think all the things going on with conflict minerals over the past 10 or 15 years, that drove that. So it was really regulatory driven. But now, as you've talked about, it's principles driven, it's values driven, it's, 
it's kindness. It's, it, it's all, and it's all accelerated by transparency. Well, exactly. And it's also, I mean, what we heard, for example, with the Bangladesh garment factories and some of these kinds of situations, we heard, well, I can't know my supply chain. There are so many intermediaries. And my response, and this goes back many years, is yes, you can. You just have to make the effort. There are things that I work with that are unknowable. We don't know the impact of certain kinds of gene editing or artificial intelligence. A supply chain is a knowable thing if you have the effort and you make the investment. I think what you're talking about, about rewarding the good, and also on the flip side, that people are no longer going to tolerate the kinds of things, the kinds of stories like we saw coming out of Bangladesh. I, I want to actually end on this mental health point. It's so extraordinary to hear a leader like you focus so much on mental health. And I think it's something that I'm hoping many more leaders will pick up as they have other areas like the human rights or the ESG that you've been talking about. It's so fundamental to what it is to be human. It's so fundamental to health. And as you pointed out, it's so fundamental to performance. So I just want to give you the last word. If there's anything else you can say about how to drive attention to mental health well in large organizations, and in particular, multinational organizations where perception of getting help or perception of how mental health is, is dealt with in society may differ across different regions. One of the companies that we've done a lot of work with is called Booz Allen and Hamilton, and they have perhaps some of the most advanced policies and programs around mental health. Well, if you look at their workforce, something like 60% of them are ex-military. So PTSD for their workforce is a real issue. A business imperative where they've got to address this or have more than half of their workplace, you know, is impacted. So, but what they've seen is it's been a, um, a retention strategy and it's been a kind of best, it's a talent acquisition strategy. So I think to the extent that it all comes down to helping people feel proud about where they work and bring their whole selves to work, which is the business case for the diversity. It's the business case for disability and inclusion. It's all the same thing. Always it comes back to trust. If you and I work together and you're an executive and you have an issue with mental health or you have an issue with sobriety or substance and we acknowledge that and we help you, that does so much more than saying nothing or doing nothing. So, you know, I really, I mean, one of the sort of core tenets of Ethisphere is that there's a correlation between good behavior and, and, and good performance. So I think to the extent that transparency continues to play a role in corporations, which are made up of human beings, can continue to embrace vulnerability, um, which again, is one of the things that's coming out of ESG. Everybody wants to know everything. What's your carbon footprint? What's you know, how much, how much water are you reusing in Africa? You know, all sorts of stuff like that. And that's only going to continue. So that's actually encouraging. So I guess, I guess the last note, you know, while it's easy to be discouraged by everything that we see, I look at corporations, I don't want to say globalism is dead, but if you look at corporations who operate um, basically with the same values, but in a hundred jurisdictions around the world, you've got to almost have a bit of faith that, you know, by embracing values, not being perfect, of course, um, we've got to hope. And the final thing that we're seeing, like IBM and others in America, education is a big issue. And the income gap and inequality around education. So you've seen IBM fund more than 100 educational institutions that focus squarely on underprivileged neighborhoods and kids that are in free lunches 
and they've seen something like 98% of the kids go through these academies and graduate and go on to be productive members of society, even going to advanced um, greater education and going directly to work. So the, the private sector is solving a problem, like they need workforce, but they're also solving a societal problem. And I think, you know, those are positive things. You, you really make some incredibly important points. And, and in particular about the, the good that corporations can do that we very often don't see and how much they're all really in very serious ways buying into not only the ESG and the supply chain and the human rights, but also what's going on in the workplace. So, so thank you for making all those connections. Thank you so much for making the time today. And really, I deeply applaud the work that you do. And, you know, anything, any way that Ethisphere, our community can be helpful. We're, 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 we're big admirers and, and we're greatly appreciative of what, of what you're doing. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tim. Take good care. All right.